Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jora, and I'll be joined in just a few moments by Joe Vasile. If that name sounds familiar to you, Joe used to be a writer for the site, and uh, I like to think of his time here as his big break, as actually he's gone on to uh, a lot of bigger and better things since he left Mets 360. Uh, He wrote for Beyond the Box Score, and he's also uh, followed his dream of becoming a pro broadcaster working for uh, numerous college and professional teams right now joe is working as the media relations director and broadcaster for the atlantic league's long island ducks so joe wow a lot of things going on in your life since we last saw you how are you i'm doing great brian uh thanks it's been uh it's been a bit of a bit of a busy uh couple months being out in i want to say uh four different states in the last year um, which is just kind of crazy to think about and say, but uh, but it's been a blast. It, it really has. Well, I, I know that uh, you're working for the Independent League, but let's talk about the Mets, if you don't mind. And my first question sure. for you is about Matt Harvey. Uh, everyone has mm-hmm. a theory about what's wrong with the, the Mets ace, and I want to know what's your theory and what do you see happening with him the rest of the year? Uh, at least in terms of, of what I think what's going on with him is, it all comes back to the thoracic outlet syndrome uh, that he was uh, shut down with last year. I, I mean, when you look at the careers of some of the guys who have been diagnosed with that, uh, even just over the past decade, you're looking at Josh Beckett, Chris Carpenter. Um, I want to say Sean Markham had it too. And Matt Harrison. Uh, this is something that's ended careers in the past and, and guys don't necessarily always come back from this. I mean, the only guy I can ever uh, think of just kind of in, in researching it uh, around last year when, when the news kind of came out that that's what he was dealing with in his shoulder uh, was Jaime Garcia was the only guy who ever really came back and kind of resembled the pitcher that he was before. So I think, at least for me personally, I, I came into this year not expecting Harvey to be the Harvey of old, and I think that that has to be the realistic expectation moving forward. Uh, and I think you're seeing it with the velocity being a little bit down uh, especially with his fastball, doesn't just have the zip that it used to have. The command, the control is just not where it was. And I think that it all comes back to that injury. Uh, now, obviously, he's done you know all the partying and distractions and stuff like that that he draws a lot of headlines for. Um, I don't think that that has a whole lot to do with it as much as uh, as necessarily you know the the injury that he he went through and just how hard it is to come back from any kind of arm-related injury if you're a pitcher. Uh, I think we've gotten kind of spoiled in the last few years with all these guys coming back from Tommy John surgery and being just as good as they were before. Uh, But if you're a pitcher, any kind of arm-related injury is is still incredibly risky, and you you run the the risk of being exactly Matt Harvey coming back and, and just not being the same pitcher anymore. 
you touched on one thing that I think is really interesting, and that's control. When we saw Matt in spring training, he he seemed to have very good control, perhaps not command, but control. Mm-hmm. He was throwing strikes. And I don't know if it's just the difference between spring training when you're not necessarily facing an A lineup versus what we see here in the regular season, but the control to me has been extremely disappointing. And one of the things that I think about is I don't think that he's aggressive enough with his pitching. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. he's not throwing in 97 but he's throwing 95 and Matt Harvey mm-hmm. at 95 ought to be fast enough to get to get outs if he was more aggressive and and quit being pretending he was Rafael Montero and nibbling all the time <laughs> yeah and and that's an interesting thing that you bring up with the spring training versus now in terms of that and it seems to me at least from the outside obviously you know I don't know him at all but that Matt's the kind of guy that if things are not going well, kind of get inside of his own head. At at least that's what it seems like sometimes. And I think that a lot of some of those problems or some of the problems that he's having in general are just, it's mental with him. Um, And I think that once he's able to get over that hump, he'll be better than he's been so far this season. I think he'll finish with an ERA under five, which I mean, I would hope uh, he's able to do, but right now, you know, he's above, but, uh, I think that a lot of it, yeah, is, is kind of on that mental side, like I said, not being as aggressive and attacking, uh, not being able to have the confidence to throw the ball uh, with any kind of accuracy the way that we've become accustomed to seeing it. And and honestly, I do have to say that's one of the areas that over the last couple of years have, have come a long way just in being around in kind of the broadcasting side of things, being around players more is just realizing, you know, I feel like as Sabre guy, you tend to downplay some of the mental aspect, but it's still very much um, an important part of the game. And and if you don't have a good head on your shoulders, you can have all the talent in the world. You can throw 95, uh, but you're not going to be able to get out. One player on the Mets who things are going very well for right now is Wilmer Flores, who's been hitting Mm -hmm. up a storm since he returned from the DL and had two more hits tonight. And I want to know what, what is your take on Flores, and how should the Mets use him going forward? Uh, honestly, I, I really like Wilmer Flores. I think that all 30 ball clubs would love to have a player like him on their team. I mean, and, and I think that maybe that's just some of uh, some of my bias from him kind of endearing himself to me with the, with the whole crying on the field thing and then the dramatic home run a couple nights later uh, back in 2015. Um, but to me... He is a versatile infielder who can play passable defense, maybe not good defense, but passable defense at all four spots. Uh, he can mash against lefties, and that's a valuable guy to have on your team. Now, is he an everyday player? I don't see that happening. Um, I mean, we've seen throughout his career now, what is it, three, four years he's been in the major leagues, that he goes through these spurts where he will just be crushing everything the way that he's doing now, but then he'll revert back to the player that he, he generally is. And again, there's nothing wrong in being the player that he is, but it's just not somebody that I would want to be throwing out there every day. Uh, a platoon bat, I would love to see him in that role, just facing lefties, coming off the bench, giving guys a day off every now and then. In terms of everyday guy, I wouldn't throw him out there unless, again, you've got enough, to make up for him at other positions, which right now the Mets don't have. 
Now, a few years ago, when the Mets drafted Michael Conforto, I believe you were working for a collegiate summer league team, and believe you yep. talked to some guys who knew Conforto, and you wrote an article for mm-hmm. the site talking about how uh, how everyone seemed to be really excited about Conforto, and of course he's gone on and, and done great things in his brief career with the Mets, and he's been mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic in the leadoff spot. And I want to know, do you think mm-hmm. that that's where he belongs right now, or should the Mets be looking uh, to move him down lower into the lineup? I think with the the way that the Mets roster is constructed right now, even if you take everybody at full health, Cespedes, heck, even throw David Wright into that, I think Conforto with this team almost has to be either your leadoff guy or your two-hole guy. Um, I don't really know if there's anyone else that I would feel comfortable in putting up there right now. And the only reason why I'd hesitate to say, yeah, he's my leadoff guy is just because I feel a little weird about wasting his power, you know, all those home runs out of the leadoff spot. I like to see him in more of a, I guess, run producing spot in the lineup, but I don't know how you can not try to get his bat the most amount of plate appearances. Uh, I mean, not only does the kid get on base power, as we've already said, um, just a, just a tremendous athlete. And I think his spot is in that one or two spot in the lineup. Um, the thing is, I don't know who else you'd throw in the leadoff spot right now. You're not going to do that with Reyes, uh, that's for sure. Um, and, and just kind of looking at the rest of the roster, I mean, there's no other guys that you look at and just go, man, this is our leadoff hitter right here. This is kind of a team without a leadoff hitter. It's a team without a center fielder and a team without a leadoff hitter. And sometimes you gotta um, you got to improvise a little bit and – I think putting Conforto up there has been great, and, and I'd like to see that continue. All during the offseason, it seemed like the Mets were chasing a leadoff hitter and a center fielder, not realizing that they had the, the best guy for the job as an internal option in Conforto. And you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nobody else to put in there besides him. Uh, a lot of people are calling for Reyes to get back up there, but – if you're a leadoff hitter, you got to get on base, and Reyes has never, yep. except for 2011, been a good leadoff hitter. And if, if not Conforto, mm-hmm. the best option might be Lucas Duda, who had three walks tonight. Yeah, yeah, I, I was uh, I was kind of on that train uh, uh, a few years back, and and I've still been on it with, you know, maybe try uh, try Duda up in that leadoff spot. Uh, I do have to admit, I, I was thinking about it, and like a Duda Conforto one two at the top of the lineup would definitely be unorthodox. Um, but honestly, I think it would work, uh, especially again, if you've got Jay Bruce actually being able to hit a healthy Cespedes, um, you know, and, and whoever else you throw out there, maybe Neil Walker figures out how to hit again and, and starts doing that. You're looking at a, what could potentially be the makings of a, of a strong top of the lineup. But if you're throwing guys up there, you know, like you said, who were just making outs left and right. Uh, you're not giving those guys the chance to be the productive hitters that they can be. Speaking of unorthodox, we have Rene Rivera, 300 hitter, something that uh, Mm -hmm. nobody would have guessed coming into the season. And now tonight, Mm -hmm. uh, Travis Darnot came back. Uh, He got a pinch hitting appearance late in the game, but he was the starter coming into the season. But how do you handle the catching position now going forward? Honestly, that's a really tough, decision uh is Rene Rivera going to finish the year hitting 300 I I seriously doubt that uh I mean uh, his batting average on balls and plays like 380 something 
uh, coming into the day today. So um, in all likelihood, he's not going to be able to keep that level of production up. Uh, but that being said, the pitchers seem to like working with him a little bit. That gives you a pretty strong reason to keep playing him. Uh, now that being said, I'd much rather see Darno in as the starting catcher. I think his offensive ceiling is, is obviously much higher than Rivera's. Um, and I think that defensively, yeah, he's got some work to do, uh, but it's not like he's, uh, you know, he's got stone hands behind the plate or anything. Uh, I think he does a capable job, but I would say at least for the short term, keep, uh, it's Darno's starting job, but with the performance that Rivera's put on, I don't know how much of a long leash, uh, Travis Darno should have, should he not be producing, up to uh, what we know he's capable of and, and what we've seen from him during his career. Um, but again, almost similar with Harvey, just the, the injuries pile up and, and maybe he's just, he's just not that player anymore and you got to go with Rivera. Uh, it's, it's tough again. And while I, I don't want to commit to Rivera, uh, I definitely think that he's, uh, he's at least a solid backup option should, should Darno not be able to handle the starting role. I've always been a Darno backer, and I hope that mm. Collins puts him into the lineup at least four times a week, if not more than that. But one of the yeah. troubles with Darno, especially on this team, is where do you hit them? And so much mm-hmm. of this season, he's been hitting eighth, which uh, might be the worst spot in the lineup for him. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious, if, if you had your druthers, where would you bat uh, Darno in the lineup? I'd probably put him... I guess it, the answer is, is kind of a full health lineup, uh, you know, with a Cespedes back in it. I'd probably put him down in in the five or six hole. Um, probably fifth uh, if we're if we're gonna gonna kind of split it and then have Walker in the six hole after him. Um, yeah, I'd probably have him have him somewhere up there just because, again, his power is you know, something that, that you want to take advantage of. And you're not really doing that too much uh, down in the eighth spot, as uh, as you know. And um, it is tough, though, just because then if you're doing that, then you're hitting as Drupal Cabrera seventh, and that's not really a great spot to have him either. Um, so you're it's kind of a mess. But I guess uh, having a good hitter too far down in the lineup is um, is not a bad mess to have all the time. He's Joe, and I'm Brian, and you're listening to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, we had Robert Gesellman took the hill and pitched six innings and threw 80-something pitches. I believe it was 84, 85, somewhere in that, in that range. Mm-hmm. And he was removed. And with all the mm-hmm. troubles that the Mets have had with their bullpen, it was a little odd that they didn't look to get another inning from Gesellman, but that lends itself mm-hmm. well into just pitch count question in general. And the Mets have mm-hmm. had so much trouble having their pitchers go deep into games because they're, they're getting huge pitch counts in the fifth inning. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're needing 100 pitches just to, to get to, to qualify for a win. And how, mm-hmm. should the, the Mets, how, how do the Mets balance the pitch count and the health of their pitchers and the, avoiding their bullpen? Uh, that's, and this is going to sound like the biggest cliche ever, but it, it comes down to the pitchers 
needing to get outs earlier in counts uh, so that they can go into the ball games a little bit deeper. And, you know, if you talk to any pitcher, you know, they're going to say that that's something that they want to do better. Um, you know, and it's obviously much easier said than done, but I think that that's honestly the best answer unless you say when everyone's healthy, if that ever happens, uh, you go to maybe a six man rotation or something like that, just to try and stretch guys out a little bit more and get them a little bit extra rest. But I mean, outside of that, it's, it's hard because you don't want to say, well, we're going to start letting guys throw more pitches um, because that leads to a whole other crop of issues. Um, now, is it necessarily that, you know, you get to 100 pitches and all of a sudden your arm's going to fall off? No. Is it all of a sudden guys are going to be able to hit better than you, off of you than they could earlier in the game? I don't think it's that either. Um, but it's just the whole repeated wear and tear thing. Um that breaks guys down. I mean, you remember back a few years ago when, when Nolan Ryan first bought the Texas Rangers and he said, you know, what we're going to do, we're going to scrap pitch counts. We're not going to care about it at all. We're just going to go out and when guys are ready to come out, they'll come out and we don't care about pitch counts. And everyone was like, all right, I like the way they're doing it. And, and then what happened to all those guys? They, they all got hurt. But a CJ Wilson, he had three good years and then was never the same again. And the same goes on and on. So you don't want to do that, but at the same time, you can't have Fernando Salas making 90 appearances and you know having three guys on pace for almost 100 appearances out of the bullpen, and you're you know not even at the end of May yet. Uh, the way that the bullpen's been used and certain guys have been just worked and worked and worked, um, it's tough to ask more out of the bullpen, and you need to get more out of the starters. But honestly, I, I don't know if I really have an answer for it other than you just need to try to pitch to contact a little bit more and and trust that your fielders are going to make the plays behind you. Um, And especially now with shifting and and all that stuff, uh, your fielders are in better position to make those plays than they've ever been. Uh, So you just have to trust that they're going to be able to do their jobs uh, to a certain level to, to be able to get you to go deeper into ballgames. You brought up the possibility of a six-man rotation, so I have to ask you, if they keep a six-man rotation, do they keep an eight-man bullpen, too, and carry 14 pitchers? <laughs> uh, again, you know what? Why not three catchers and, and four right fielders? And, you know, just, just keep up the wacky roster construction. Um, no, but uh, but in all seriousness, I, I would think that if they would go to a six-man rotation, they would they would drop at least one guy out of the bullpen and go with more of a seven-man bullpen. I would like to think that would be Rafael Montero um, since, uh, I mean, he's done nothing but prove that he just can't get out to the major league level, at least not with the stuff that he currently has. And the only way that he's ever going to be an effective major league pitcher is to either go down to the minors and work on refining some of his secondary stuff, um, or it's just never going to happen for him. So I would like to think that you'd probably drop him and uh, and add in the new starter, whoever that is, whether it's Seth Lugo when he's ready to go or, you know, a, a healthy Mats or Syndergaard when he gets back from the lat injury or all of the above. We talked earlier briefly about Jose Reyes, who got off to such an awful start uh, an awful start to the season, but he's been he's been better lately and on top of a little bit of a hitting resurgence, he's also been their everyday shortstop. So what happens mm-hmm. to him when as Drupal Cabrera comes back, especially with Flores hitting as well as he has? 
Uh, I would think that Reyes probably ends up being the odd man out in that situation. Um, it's unfortunate to say, but I think at this point um, he's best suited to offer for being the guy on the bench. And I think that why he would be the one to go is he gives you the switch hitting option. So the whole lefty righty thing that, you know, we all know that Terry Collins loves will be in play no matter what. Uh, he can act as a pinch runner late in games uh, as well. So he gives you that kind of added flexibility off the bench as well. Um, personally, I'd like to see him almost move over to third base and, and kind of form a platoon with, uh, with Wilmer Flores. Again, it would be a little unorthodox since you don't normally platoon with a switch hitter, but I think Flores against lefties is uh, career-wise much better than Reyes against lefties is, and, and Reyes has always been a better left-handed hitter than a right-handed hitter throughout his career, uh, even though that hasn't been the case here this year. Um, you know, I, I think that that could be something that could help the Mets out in terms of those two uh, almost functioning as that platoon being better than the sum of their parts. Um, but as we've noticed throughout the years, Collins has almost been very hesitant to do that or, uh, you know, with, except for that weird kind of month and a half when there was a three-way platoon at first base with Ike Davis and Lucas Duda. And uh, I forget who was even the right-handed guy in that platoon. Uh, that's how long ago it was. But um, I think it might've been, might've been Josh Satin maybe. Um <laughs> can't believe that was a thing. Um, but he's been very hesitant to platoon, so so I don't see that happening really. I see either Reyes moving to third base full-time and Flores to the bench, or, or probably more likely Reyes to the bench full-time uh, once Cabrera gets back, and then he can play that kind of utility infielder role, play a little second maybe uh, to give Neil Walker a day off, play third to give Flores a day off, give Cabrera some time at short, um, you know, kind of being that guy. We have an abundance of infielders, it seems, and it's only going to get more crowded when, if mm-hmm. and when they decide to call up Ahmed Rosario. And mm-hmm. uh, right now the, the talk is, you know, there's, they're not going to do anything until the Super 2 uh, deadline, which is not a firm thing, uh, when, mm-hmm. when that has allegedly passed, that he'll be called up. Mm-hmm. So how, how much should that Super 2 deadline impact when we see Rosario? I mean, the the short answer is, personally, I don't think it should. Um, but the state of baseball business, you know, in 2017 with the current CBA that we have, uh, is that it, it most likely will. Um, and, I mean, I would love to take the opportunity and, you know, call the Mets out for being – or whatever, but every team does this. I mean, look at the Cubs a couple of years ago with Chris Bryant where they kept him – down in AAA for an extra three weeks so they could delay his free agency by a year, or when the Mets did this with Wheeler back in 2013. Uh, you know, it, it happens. Um, you know, teams do this. It's the way that kind of the uh, front offices manage minor league talent nowadays. And uh, and so I, I think that it will have an impact on when we see him. And obviously, like you said, it's not a firm day, so you're just kind of guessing and saying, well, if we call him up now, that should get us past the Super 2. But you don't know that for a fact, so you're kind of, you're kind of chasing an imaginary tale almost uh, if, you're, if you're keeping a guy down in the minors for that. Um, but one of the things 
that I, I guess, again, being, being down in the Red Sox system last year that I learned was there's a lot that goes on with promoting a player outside of just the stats because almost that's one of the least important things. And, you know, while Rosario is just raking in Vegas uh, right now, there's so many other things, I guess, that maybe from an organizational standpoint, we're just not aware of. Maybe they want him to work on a certain aspect of his game before they're ready to call him up. And he's just not at a major league level yet in that aspect or a couple of aspects um, that could be delaying things as well. I, I think it would be, it would be a little, uh, I don't want to say foolish, but, but it, it would be a little, I guess, presumptuous to say that the super two is the only thing keeping in, in Vegas. Uh, I'm sure there's other legitimate baseball reasons. Um, but I do think that that is uh, a big factor and an important factor. Cause look, Maybe whatever's holding him back is something that's so minor that he could work on it in the majors. But if he can work on it in the minors and then you get an extra year of free agency and save a couple bucks, um, yeah, yeah, why not have him work on it in Vegas if you're the organization? Now, last year you were the broadcaster for the Red Sox High A affiliate in Salem, and one of the players who mm-hmm. was there at the beginning of the year was Andrew Benintendi, who went on yep. to – make the jump all the way to the majors last year. And just mm-hmm. if, if you can, I mean, I know this is not an easy thing for you, but if you could just compare the situations between Rosario and Benintendi, even though they're, they're mm-hmm. not necessarily uh, comparable, they play different positions. They're at different levels. Mm-hmm. I still think that this is a case of uh, how an organization handles top prospects and just mm-hmm. curious how you would compare those two. Uh, well, the thing with Ben Intendi, and this was almost immediately kind of obvious, was he was just he was advanced far beyond anybody else in that league. I mean, he went at one point he went uh, he went three weeks without swinging and missing at a pitch. Uh, we actually wow. counted out it was like sixty one or sixty two straight swings without missing. Um, it was impressive. He was just he was no match for that league, and and it was very clear and very obvious that. This was not a challenge for him. He needed to go up to double A, and then he went up to double A and hit 350 there. Um, so it, he was very obviously major league ready. Uh, and, I mean, that wasn't even really close. I, I almost think a better parallel to the Rosario situation is uh, we also had Johan Moncada uh, with us at the beginning of the year last year, who, of course, was traded in the Chris Sale deal, is now part of the White Sox organization and is in triple A right now. And Moncada obviously the Cuban prospect, $32 million contract, all the hype. He got off to this just tear right to start the season. He's hitting 330, 340. Uh, Not a lot of home runs because it was a tough home run park, but doubles and triples and 30 stolen bases and all this. And Boston just wasn't promoting him up to double A. And it was because he had this quirk in his game. He, uh, he didn't slide head first. He, he would only go in feet first. And you'd think, okay, that's not a big deal, except he got picked off like three or four times at first base because he would always go back in standing and he would never dive. So before they promoted him to double A and before they would allow him to go up to double A, they said, you need to learn how to slide head first. So he probably stayed with us for an extra two weeks just to be able to learn that one little thing 
uh, and that one part of the game before they were comfortable uh, advancing him up to double A. And then eventually they called him up uh, by the end of the year too, uh, to use in September. But um, I think that that's almost a, a better kind of parallel because he was a lot more raw, a lot less refined, but the talent was just so there, so apparent. The stats showed that he was ready and could handle the pitching, could handle things on the defensive side, but there were just these little nuances, these little things that needed to be refined on the edges before he'd be truly prepared to take on the next level. And um, it's necessarily the case with Rosario, um, but I would suspect that if he was ready to play in the major leagues, he he would probably be here. Um, Unless, let's put it this way, if he is ready to play in the major leagues right now and he's not here, uh, just shame on the Mets. Oh, completely agree, and and great stuff on on the Mancata comparison. Well, we've got time mm-hmm. for one more question, and each week we do a crazy prediction, and I'm going to give you mine, okay. and I want you to comment on mine, and then give me one for you. And mine is that Robert Gesellman, who had a nice uh, outing tonight, is straightened out, and he leads the team in wins. So I want to know how mm-hmm. crazy is that, and what's your prediction? Um, honestly, I don't think that that. Uh, that that's that crazy. I think we saw the potential for, for Robert Kesselman at the end of last year. And uh, I want to say he's got, what, two wins this year, and Jacob deGrom leads the team with three. So he, he's right there. And uh, and I think that what uh, what we saw where he was getting lit up a little bit, I, I think that was more of a, a blip in the radar uh, rather than, than any kind of regression out of him. And, uh, you know, I've always kind of had a soft spot for him. And it might just be because of the, the funky spelling of his last name, but but I've always really liked Robert Gazelman, and and uh, and I would like nothing more than for your prediction to come true, than for him to have righted the ship and and to go on to have a successful year uh, pitching here for the Mets. Now, in terms of uh, my prediction, uh, that's a little bit different. My crazy prediction actually involves Ahmed Rosario, who we were just uh, sorry about that, who we were just talking about. Um, I think when he gets called up he ends up going on to win National League Rookie of the Year. Wow. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I hate it when people go safe, and that is certainly not a safe prediction. <laughs> no. Well, Joe, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you – I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say I'll tell you why, uh, just because I think by the time he comes up, things will be starting to turn back around, and voters will be able to point and say he got called up, and then they went on this tear and uh, got themselves into the playoffs. I can see it happening, and I hope it happens, but I still think it's crazy, and I, and I love it for that. <laughs> well, Joe, we are we are all out of time. I want to thank you so much for, for joining us tonight, and hopefully your schedule will allow you to, to do this again sometime. It was a great half hour. Absolutely. I had, a great, I had a blast. All right. Well, this is Mets 360. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Good night, everyone.